first reading is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 17th chapter, beginning at the 6th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. You be seated. They set out on pilgrimage three times a year ascending to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And along the way, they engaged in an ancient process of formation, singing together the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, reorienting themselves to who they were in God's eyes, recommitting themselves to live God's way in God's world. Similarly, we are on pilgrimage, ascending to celebrate the Easter feast being formed by these same Psalms, for many of the essential elements of Christian discipleship are found in them, 
Because we're reorienting ourselves to where God calls us in Jesus. Last week, Psalm 120 guided our first step, set our faces toward our destination. With the psalmist expressing our deep dissatisfaction with the way the world works, and in repentance, turning our faces toward the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, the coming together of heaven and earth, when God's presence and beauty and justice and peace would flood the earth in new creation. But now, between the first step of Psalm 120 and the thanksgiving for safe arrival in Psalm 122 is the journey itself. And Psalm 121 invites us to reflect on the journey, the pilgrimage being a metaphor for the journey of life. And so I'll invite you, if you have your Bibles handy or to call up on your Bible app, Psalm 121 as we look at it together. Now the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a journey that was fraught with danger, and the psalmist reflects on that in the Psalms, the loose gravel that disrupts sure footing Sprains, breaks, abrasions, the protracted exposure to the sun with limited hydration that would predispose one to sunstroke, the bandits that would lurk in the shadows to prey upon unsuspecting travelers, the resulting fatigue and anxiety that would undermine mental and emotional health, what the ancients called moonstroke, from which we get our word lunacy. This pilgrimage was a metaphor for the journey of life, for life as we know it is fraught similarly with dangers, fears, worries, anxieties. As we begin, let me ask you, what dangers do you see lurking around the corner? What fears consume your thoughts? What worries hold your attention? Perhaps you find yourself concerned about your security that we so often equate with our financial health. But you might be unemployed, underemployed, or have a steady stream of income, but with inflation at a 30-year high, costs far outpacing your income growth. Your freedom, your choices are constrained. A superheated real estate market taking housing well beyond the reach of so many Will you, your children, ever have a home to call their own? Perhaps it's your inner life that holds your attention. The darkness, the loneliness that was always there, but now with such limits on where you can go and what you can do and who you can see, the darkness is choking out more and more of the light, the loneliness becoming unbearable. Perhaps it's your relational landscape that consumes your energy. Only recently you had a wide and rich relational life. Your relational needs met rightly in the context of a wide community. And so the difficult relationship with the partner, the parent, the child, while problematic, was manageable. But now, sheltered in place, occupying your headspace, if not your very living space, that relationship is now unbearable. The pandemic drags on. Those of us with many years behind us indeed know that this too shall pass. And while grievous, it's but a small fraction of life, but 
our children, our grandchildren. This pandemic is taking up a huge swath of their life at such a formative age. Their education disrupted, their social growth stunted, their experience of the world marred by anxiety, mistrust. And we even bear to think of what the long-term consequence might be. Perhaps your physical well-being has been disrupted either by the virus or by the constraints the virus has placed on our healthcare system. If they'd caught it earlier, would I be in this place? The road to recovery is unclear. Will I ever get back to what I once was? The pilgrimage to Jerusalem was fraught with many dangers. Similarly, the journey of life is fraught with many dangers, prompting the psalmist, verse 1, to lift their eyes up to the hills and cry out in desperation, where in the midst of this, this worry, this fear, this danger, this mess does my help come from? What wisdom will guide me? What power will enable me? Where does my help come from? Perhaps such a cry is your heart's cry. But why such a cry, such a question directed to the hills of all places? I remember years ago going to Athens and climbing the Acropolis. It's the high point of the city. Every square inch was taken over by the ruins of temples, monuments, statues, in honor of the gods of the Greek pantheon. Right below the summit was a very, very large rock called the Areopagus, where the philosophers would meet and debate and discuss. I climbed it because it's where Paul gave that famous address to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, climbed to the top and began to read. In the beginning of his speech, he says, I perceive that you are in every way a very religious people. For as I walked along, I observed the objects of your worship. From the vantage point of that rock, as far as the eye could see in every single direction, every single high place, every hill was crowned with the ruins of a temple. The psalmist lifts his eyes to the hills and is met with the same scene, even in ancient Israel. For atop every hill, if not a temple, then a shrine, then a sacred grove of trees, there you would find escapes and pleasures to numb and distract you from the pains of life. There you could buy a spell, an amulet, an enchantment to protect you. There for a price, an offering, a ritual, you could leverage a god in your favor. Atop the hills were the answers that their culture gave to that heart's cry, Where? Where does my help come from? The hills would answer. You might say, well, thankfully, we've progressed beyond such Backwards pagan superstition, such belief in myth and magic. We're an enlightened and scientific people. Yes, we are. But we are still that. People. And while the means and methods have changed, we still handle the changes and chances of life with the same impulses, the same inclinations. 
We may not ascend the hill to get intoxicated in the temple of Dionysus, the god of wine, but the inclination to numb ourselves to the pain is still there. I read recently in the midst of the pandemic, we went up to the LCBO in record numbers and bought up more alcohol than we ever have before. They say it'll take five years to get back down to pre-pandemic levels. Alcohol, not your thing. Well, there are other ways we numb our pain. We may not ascend the temple to the temple of the fertility goddess to escape the sorrows of life in the arms of a temple prostitute, either male or female, but we can boot up our computers for instant access to someone who will titillate our fantasies. There's always a new show to binge watch. Always a new holiday to plan and anticipate and escape. We may not ascend the hill with an animal to have the priest give us wisdom and direction by reading the entrails of the animal, but we will ascend the high place of success and take direction from the latest self-help group book or tweet from the celebrity, the talk show host, the CEO, Because as a culture, we worship success, believing that success has these magical properties that success in one area of life naturally translates to success in every other area of life. Really? Success as an actor, pretending to be someone else, automatically makes you successful in life, in relationships, in politics? We're no better off than reading entrails. We may not ascend the hill, but it is said that the highest buildings in a city reveal what a culture worships. What are the highest buildings in our city? They're graced with the symbols of our major banks, CIBC, TD, RBC. We may not ascend the hills to buy an amulet, a spell, an enchantment to protect us, but we'll ascend those steps and by the insurance policy, the TFSA, the RRSP, believing that similarly they will keep us safe. But the things that harm us the most, death, disease, broken relationship, come regardless of how much money we have. And those of us who've rested our security and money are often the least able to handle such things because we believed money would keep us safe or that with money we could buy our way out of it. We may not ascend the hill, but when our ancestors got to the top of the hill and were met with the image of their God, it was like looking in a mirror. Their humanity was reflected back to them. We ascend a similar hill and have our image reflected back to us for self-sufficiency reigns. Look inward, we're told. You've got what it takes. You're the master of your own destiny, the captain of your own ship. The hills were the answers the culture gave to that desperate cry in the midst of the pains of life. I need help. What wisdom will guide me? What power will enable me? Where does my help come from? And the psalmist surveys the options of the hills and then answers his own question. Looking up above the hills, beyond the horizon, he says, My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. 
begs the question, is that where our help comes from? And if so, how do we lay a hold of that help? Well, the psalmist guides us. The phrasing of verse 3 in the Hebrew isn't so much a statement as it is a prayer, a request. May he not let your foot be moved. May he who guards you not slumber. You know, one of the convictions I have as a preacher is that I shouldn't try and preach a text to anyone else before the Spirit of God has preached the text to my heart. And it was here at verse 3 where conviction fell, where the word came home, where the Spirit pressed the truth down. I don't know about you, but intellectually, I know is a statement of belief that God is my help. But it is a very slow turn to live into that truth by going to God in prayer. I'll linger over the options I see in the hills. A little numbing there, a little escape over here, a little self-sufficiency in that situation, a little bored wisdom in this other. And then I do go to prayer. And often at the end of it, I think, why didn't I go there first? All this time and energy and effort that I spend on all of those options, and I should have come to prayer first. And you'd think that the next time I was in such a situation, I'd go to prayer first, but, but I don't. It's the options in the hills. For they're all around us. It's part of the air that we breathe. It makes sense that we would go to them first. Right? I mean, the Israelites would lift their eyes up, and at every gaze they would be met with those options of the hills. So it was great wisdom then. Those three times a year that they went up to Jerusalem, they reoriented themselves to this truth. The hills have nothing to offer. Lift your eyes up above the hills and in prayer grab a hold of a help that can only come from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. But the rest of the psalm, verses 4 through 8, isn't a prayer at all. Commentators reflecting on the Hebrew pronouns suggest that we're actually here overhearing the internal dialogue of the psalmist. The psalmist taking a hold of himself and saying, listen self, in the midst of this danger, this fear, this worry, anxiety, I've got something you need to hear. D.M. Lloyd-Jones was a physician turned pastor. And he approached his pastoral care of his congregation out of that medical training with a keen eye for diagnosis. And he wrote a book out of his wisdom and experience entitled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. It's probably one of the most helpful books I've ever read on applying the truth of Scripture to our hearts. And in the first chapter, he's reflecting on another psalm, Psalm 42, which similarly has this internal dialogue of the psalmist. The psalmist is overwhelmed by what's going on around him, which leads Jones to observe that one of our biggest problems we have in the midst of the struggles of life is listening to ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of something distressing, I'm constantly playing over in my mind 
worrying about all the ways it could go wrong, stewing on the negative emotions that swirl, having imaginary conversations with the people involved, letting this internal dialogue take its natural course. It's miserable. It's listening to myself. Jones, knowing this, observes, have you realized, he says, that most of the unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Instead, reflecting on the wisdom of this psalm, Jones says, take a hold of yourself. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself of who God is, what he's done, what he's pledged himself to do. And that is exactly what the psalmist is doing here. Verse 4, listen, self, in the midst of this danger, worry, fear, and anxiety, I've got something you need to hear. The Lord who keeps Israel keeps you, and he will neither slumber nor sleep. You see, when the people ascended those hills to buy the amulets, the spells, the enchantments, and they didn't work, you know what the most common explanation that was given that God must be asleep. you got to do something to wake him or her up. And they had all these rituals to do just that. You might remember in 1 Kings 18, the prophets of Baal are facing off against Elijah. There's a famine in the land. Which God is going to answer, Baal or Yahweh? The prophets of Baal are doing all of these rituals and nothing's happening. And Elijah begins to taunt them and say, well, maybe Baal's asleep. Or maybe Baal's going on holiday to Cancun. Or maybe Baal's in the bathroom relieving himself. And then they engage in all of these rituals to try and wake Baal up. And the psalmist takes a hold of himself and says, Listen, self, unlike all of the options of the hills, Yahweh doesn't sleep. You're always under his watchful care. Verse 5, listen, self. Yahweh is your keeper, your shade on your right hand. There is never a time where God is not as close as your very shadow. Verse 6, listen, self. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil, keep your going in and your coming out, now and forevermore. Now, as we hear the psalmist addressing himself in this way, particularly here, you might begin to wonder, how his promises seem divorced from reality? I mean, these promises seem to go above and beyond our experience. Really? God keeps us from all evil? Every single one of us has evidence to the contrary, some more than others. Is that what the psalmist is doing? Rooting himself in platitudes that are pie in the sky, divorced from reality? No. If that were the case, we wouldn't even have this psalm. Because there'd be no need to cry out in desperation, where does my help come from? A Jesus follower, like everyone else in the world, is not immune from the changes and chances, the sorrows and sufferings of life. They'll come regardless. So how can the psalmist say, God will keep me from all evil? Maybe this would help. 
We pray something similar every time we gather, don't we? In the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word temptation is the word parasmos. It can either mean to test or to tempt. And those are two very different things. To test is something that is meant to prove someone's character. And so improve it, to tempt is meant to entice a person into sin, to bring them down in some way. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is acknowledging that life is going to be full of parasmos, sufferings and sins and sorrows. And those circumstances can either be tests, refining in us deeper character and love and compassion, or they can be temptations, undermining faith and character. The psalmist is preaching to themselves. Listen, self. The Lord will keep you from all evil, that the sorrow you face will refine and strengthen rather than destroy and undermine. Self, the Lord is your keeper. How do we know that? How can we rest in that? There was another time in Scripture where such an affirmation of God keeping us is rested in. And it's Jesus' prayer for you and for me in John 17 that the Lord would keep, the Lord would guard, the Lord would protect. And then the next morning, Jesus goes out and makes good on that prayer. He goes to a cross and takes our sin upon his shoulders and dies our death. He takes the fury of injustice, death, and hell and disarms them forever. And rising again, he ushers in a new creation, assuring us that our future is the coming together of heaven and earth when our world would be flooded with his beauty, love, justice, and peace. In light of these glorious truths, we can along the journey of life fraught with its dangers, take a hold of ourselves and say, self, Nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Self, it looks like these circumstances are going to undermine God's work in you. But not at all. Not at all. New creation will flood you, will flood the earth. Self, don't wallow in guilt and condemnation. Your sins are forgiven. The cross declares it. Self, you may feel in this like you are utterly alone. But God and Jesus is as close to you as your very shadow. The journey of life is fraught with danger leading us to cry out, where does my help come from? We lift our eyes up and see the options of the hills. Let us look beyond to God, the maker of heaven and earth, laying a hold of his help in prayer and declaring the truth to ourselves. Self, God is your keeper. God is your keeper. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. 
Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services. 